If you have a Bible, let me uh, encourage you to turn to Psalm 14. I will turn there myself. We have uh, just, a, next week is our last week in the Psalm series and we'll take a pause on it. Um, it's been really good to look at each Psalm and see what God has to say to us and, and this week's Psalm again is not in the category of lament but pretty close to it, okay? So it's, it may, maybe we should have just called it like Psalms of the Lament, right? That's kind of where we've been landing. Um, but God has hopefully um, shown you new things about himself. There was a professor in uh, the University of Florida who wanted to um, do a bit of an experiment. And so he, he did this for a number of years in a row where he uh, started his course with a story to see where his students were at. And he kind of gave a little bit, it's not really a story, he gave a bit of a, a scenario. He said, you know, what would you do if you are walking down the street at night and it's late at night, nobody's really around, but you see uh, an old lady um, kind of hunched over, carrying like a large purse or a bag or something, and she's walking along. And in your mind, you think it would be incredibly easy to just push her over and grab the purse and run. Nobody would know. It would be that simple. Would you or wouldn't you do that? And that was the question that he posed to his class. And he said, probably the answer to that question is coming to your mind in two ways. The first one, he said, is you, you wouldn't do it probably because of shame and honor. So you wouldn't do that because you know that within maybe your own family or maybe within your own culture, it just, it looks bad for like a healthy, strong young person to push over a, a weaker, older person and it might bring shame to you as a person, it might bring shame to your family or to you know the people that you're from. People would be like, why are you doing that kind of a thing? And so you would resist to do it. The other option possibly is that you would look at the old lady and you would quickly deduce in your mind Maybe she needs the things that are in her purse. You know, maybe she needs the, the money that is in her wallet. And if I push her over and take this thing, she won't be able to provide for herself. And maybe there's even dependent people that she wouldn't be able to provide for. And so that may be your answer. And if that's the case, then the reasoning Whereas the first reason was kind of self, was like ego was central because it made you look bad. The, the second answer is much more other focused, right? She is actually the focus of the reason why you're not doing that. And when he asked the class, all of them said, you know, he said, why would you not do it? Because they all said they wouldn't do it. All of them said the second reason, okay? Everybody, like, that was their answer. And he went on to say this. He said... You may not realize it, but the idea that you put the other person ahead of yourself rather than thinking of yourself first comes from Christianity. Your morals have been shaped by Christianity. 
So this isn't like at a Christian university. This isn't like a Christian college. This isn't a seminary. He was just trying to point out to people that most of the students maybe that he was even interacting with were like opposed to Christianity. But here he said, the thing that you desire, the, the moral ethic that you want is actually coming to you from the Christian ethic. Now why would that even matter? When you look at uh, Psalm 14. How does that connect to Psalm 14? Well, what we're going to see this morning in Psalm 14 is David kind of explaining the rationale for that kind of a thinking. Why it is that we long for, for justice, but what we actually end up finding is that, man, we live in a world that is filled with trouble and evil and we're we're divided in terms of what we choose to do on any given moment, whether it's for a good reason or for a bad reason. And the way that David actually starts this, in these seven little verses, right? If you look at chapter 14, seven verses, quickly read through. The way that David begins it is by looking at the fool. So let's look at verse one again, okay? This is probably a verse that you're familiar with or maybe that you've read before or heard before. But verse one again says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. What is, the the Bible when it talks about the fool um, has many different descriptions. And if you were to do like a, a word search for the word fool, you'll find it throughout scripture. Okay, but basically the fool in scripture is someone who Um, does not take in the word or the instruction of God, all right? The fool is not necessarily someone who is not intellectual, okay? We might think the word fool, we might associate it with someone who is not smart, but in the Bible, actually, the fool is someone who just hears the wisdom of God and rejects it. It might be a perfectly brilliant person, like a really smart person, a person who in the world could just like figure things out really well, could build something amazingly or whatever category of intelligence there is. But in the word of God, this idea of a fool is someone who kind of rejects and throws out the wisdom of God. And that's why even in scripture, uh, you see this in the life of Jesus, where children are often shown as examples of people who actually can take in the wisdom of God. Some people think that that's just, you know, kids are gullible and, uh, you know, they just accept whatever is given to them. But actually the word of God says that kids can take in this wisdom. And, And even in the world around us, there's times where in the secular world where people see that kids have this way of accepting things which is something that we adults have actually lost. They can actually take things in in a um, in not a way that has been has been skewed by the world, right? All of us we've been like skewed by the world in different ways, and children just like take it in. And Jesus actually says, "Let them come." They actually know what they're doing. Let them come because they're not like skewed by the world. And so. Maybe the plainest language around the word fool I pulled out of Proverbs 26, 11. Maybe you like memorized this verse once upon a time, right? Or you quoted it at some point or you're just like, when you were a kid, you're like, that is the coolest verse because it has vomit in it, right? It's just so amazing. But Proverbs 26, 11 says, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. So what is that proverb saying? The dog has actually eaten something that is making it sick. Okay, that's what's happened. 
And what is it doing? It's going right back to it. Okay, so the proverb is like, don't do what the dog just did. It did something really dumb, and now it's repeating the process, and it's going to be like, repeat it again. Okay, it's just going to keep going and going and going. And that is the idea behind this word, the fool. And David says in 14, his summary here for this issue that he is going to talk about is that the fool actually says, there is no God. So in the scriptures, the fool is someone who rejects what God has actually communicated, what God has actually said, and rather they go back to what is not good for them, and they repeat it, and they repeat it, and they repeat it. But in the world, in the non-Christian world, who's the fool? In the world, actually, the fool um, is someone who may put their faith in something like God. Right? So the, in the world, verse 1 actually makes no sense at all. In the world, it has flipped the opposite. The fool is actually someone who believes in God. And that is definitely the case in our world today, in our secular world, Western world. I wouldn't say it's the case um, globally. I actually did some research a, a few weeks ago on like um, belief in God, and it, it's fascinating. Pew Research did some some research just in the last few years of who believes in God, which countries do or don't, and it is like Western, wealthy countries, like very little belief in God. Non-Western, poorer countries, massive belief in God. And then there's like the us who live in Western, wealthy world countries, and we do believe in God. But we are the minority right? We are the minority. But this is not anything that's new. This is like not shocking to the Christian world, not shocking to Christian history. Even the Apostle Paul in Corinthians talks about this specifically. I think I included some verses from 1 Corinthians where he says, like, this is the world that I'm living in. He says this in verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, I also live in this world of questions of rejection of God, of trying to seek some sort of answers, but not really seeking answers. Very similar to the world situation that we live in today. And Paul says, the thing that we're preaching, Christ crucified, it's a joke to the world. It's folly. It's foolishness. So who is right? Is David right, or is the world right? And this is the question that maybe um, you've been able to have conversations with, with friends, or maybe you've even had that wrestle in your own mind. I know a couple years ago I was visiting a friend of mine, and we had conversations, and he knew that I was a pastor, and he knew that I was, we were about to plant citizens, so he's like, tell me about this, man, because like, I don't get it. And he's 
coming at me with all these really good questions, right? Most of the questions that people usually ask us, like how can there be a loving God when there's so much evil in this world? Or how can you even believe in something that you can't kind of hold on to or test? He's kind of challenging me with all these questions and I'm trying to answer as best as I can. It was like a good conversation back and forth. And finally, I kind of asked him back and I wasn't trying to be like, you know, get a checkmate question that's just gonna like lock him in. But I was just kind of like, hey, like what if you come to the end of your life and you die and you discover that you are standing in the presence of God and that you were wrong, you should have put your trust in him. I was just curious, like does that question ever come into your mind when you think about it? And, and he answered back, um, not, not in anger, but he was kind of like, well, if that's the case, if that's what God is like, then he can send me happily to hell. I was like, whoa, that's, I wasn't, I wasn't wanting us to go there necessarily, but it was like, that was his conclusion. And it got me thinking in that moment, as we continued the dialogue and we continued to discuss different things, the rejection of God is a big deal. Like to stand and say, God, you do not exist. I will not believe in you is a big step. And David says it's the step that the foolish person takes. It's the step that the foolish person takes, which makes it really serious. But listen, this is not just a, an issue for the atheist. Because the atheist gladly says, I do not believe in God. I'm not going to believe it. But the Christian can also live in a way that they do not believe that God exists. You can call yourself a Christian, you can read the Bible, but then in the circumstances of your life, in the day-to-day things that are going on around you, you can try to manipulate your world so that essentially you live as if God doesn't exist. You are practically, you are functionally saying, I don't believe in God, even though you would call yourself a Christian. So maybe at work you're trying to make sure that you keep that job. And so you're willing to like fudge on certain things, you're willing to compromise some certain standards just so that you can fit in, so that you have the security of that job. Because really, you're wondering in your mind, if I don't have that, what's gonna take care of me? Practically, functionally, acting, playing the part of the fool here. So this is not just a category where we as Christians point the finger and say, aha, atheists, they're foolish. No, we say we could very well play that role as well and probably do more often than we realize. So who is right? Well, God has given us uh, so many um, dots that actually lead us to see his fingerprints, his work in the world around us. He's given us things. He's given us things like our moral conscience, right? The fact that we know that there is right and wrong, that there are things that we should and shouldn't do. Even just the other day, um, Adam and I were in the city in Toronto, and so we went to Muji. If you've ever been to Muji, great Japanese store, right? And we're about to go in. I went into the door, and I didn't realize there was a lineup, okay? Because only a certain amount of people. So I w- went in the door and the security guard was like, hey buddy, there's a line back there. Get in line. I was like, oh, okay, I want to get in line. I was like, I knew that that was the right thing to do. I wasn't going to be like, I don't care. I burst my way in, right? It was like a simple thing of a line to go into a store. We know that there's right way and a wrong way. So 
how do we have that from anything in life? Like, who tells us that it's right to kill another human or not to? Or to say to someone that you shouldn't do that because they're like, I don't care. Where does that moral standard come from? There's also just the, the, the cosmos, right? The, the world, if you've stood out um, in a dark, you know, outside of, maybe outside of a city, maybe way out somewhere, you see the universe, you see like that you are this tiny speck. And now that we've seen like with different satellites and telescopes going out, we see the magnificence of the universe around us. God actually has made this and so we can see this and we can make our own definitions of what it is or we can actually acknowledge that there is a God around us. Or the design, and this isn't meant to be a sermon on the apologetics of the existence of God, but just the design of the world around us, whether you look in a telescope or whether you look in a microscope, you see that, man, things like are working in a certain way. There are, there's order to this world that, that God has made. And who did that? Like, who designed that? Who made it to fit just perfectly together? And, and how is it actually holding together? Stephen Hawking said this once, he said, or wrote this, if the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in 100,000 million millionth, the universe would have recollapsed before it ever reached its present size into a hot fireball. The odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are religious implications. So even Stephen Hawking, this famous physicist, um, was like, I don't know, there's some mystery here. There's, there's something going on here. Now listen, we can't, I'm not going to sit here and say that I can prove that God exists, like I can prove that this stand is here, right? And I'm not just going to like pull some atheist physicist quote out to say, aha, there, this is to prove that God exists. But these are dots that point to a God. And ultimately, we as believers know that the, the largest piece, the final piece is actually the work of God himself in our hearts. That God convinces our hearts that he is real and we put our trust and our belief in him. So that we can say like Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 9, for I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. So Paul says, listen, I willingly make all the arguments. I go into the marketplace. I discuss with people. But ultimately, he says, I'm putting my trust in Christ, even when it makes me look the fool. Even when it makes me look like I don't understand what I'm doing, Paul says, I am putting my trust in Christ, in the Creator. So David says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And what's the result of that then? What's the result of saying that, believing that, actually making that a part of your life? Well, at the end of verse 1, it says that they are corrupt. But in verse 3, if you look down at verse 3, it says they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, 
not even one. David says, here's the result of it. The result is actually when people do that, when mankind did that, you know, you think of Adam and Eve in the garden, but also continually do that, the result then is that they have turned aside. They've become corrupt. So they actually are corrupted and, and kind of the, the word there means literally um, they're spoiled or, or soured or they're corrupted. Okay, that, that's what actually happens to people on this planet. And when you go to a city, I don't know when the last time you've been into a city, but it's amazing just to watch people, right? You see like here in Elmira, you don't maybe see the variety as you would in a city. You just see all kinds of people, like people that have all kinds of different styles and people that who on the outside look like they have it together and then other people who look like they're totally messed up and they don't have it together. You just get to see a wide variety of the society. But here David is saying the result of people when they reject God is that they're actually corrupted. They're soured. So even the ones that when we look at them, we're like, that looks like a really good person. What we actually discover is that Everything that we do is actually somehow, it's like tainted a little bit. It's somehow crooked. It's not a straight line, okay? There's corruption that happens. It's like something is souring. If you've ever left milk out on the table, never happens for us. We are the type of people, it's like you use the milk, go straight back in the fridge, okay? Straight back in the fridge. But maybe you leave the milk out and it gets sour and it gets corrupted and you're the one who pours that onto your cereal it's a big mess right soured or maybe you have bananas that have just been left around the table too long and they're slowly getting mushy and brown they are corrupted okay don't eat them they may be good for banana bread but just don't eat them right they are way too far along david is saying this is what people are like our hearts are corrupted we are crooked. We're not exactly straight. There is a rottenness that is in the core that sometimes even when we're doing things that are good, we don't even realize it, but we're actually like, we're not, our motives are actually off. And they're corrupted in a sense. And so that can happen socially and that can happen personally as well. And so, and if we would have time, but we don't, but in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul actually uses some of these verses from Psalm 14 to kind of summarize in chapter 3 of Romans what the sinfulness of mankind is like. So in Romans, he's taken chapter 1, 2, and 3 to explain this is what sinfulness looks like in the human heart. And all the way to the third chapter, he summarizes it by saying, you know, they have turned aside, together they have become corrupt. There's corruption that's happened in their hearts. And so, I mean, that's why we see the brokenness in the world around us. We see the brokenness in our own hearts. That's why there's tension in the relationships that we uh, are in. That's why we do things wrong. That's why we hurt people that we love. I mean, that is the source behind all the things, all the wrong that is in this world, all the wrong that is in our lives. It's actually the corruption that has come into the heart of mankind. And again, what Paul says in Romans 3 is it goes from the person who is what he calls in chapter 1 the pagan Right? Someone who's never heard about God and they just have completely rejected him. All the way up to in chapter 3, it's the religious person. The religious person that's pointing at the pagan saying, that's not me. 
Paul says, from beginning to end, everybody is corrupted. So, is that the end? Is that, the, is that where the story lands for us? Well, we know as believers, and thankfully we have here in chapter 14, that God is actually doing something. Okay, even in the, the mess of the world that we're in, even in the corruption of the world that we're in, even in the world where we regularly say, and others with full, you know, 100% say there is no God, God is still at work on the scene. It says in verse, um, look at verse 2, it says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after him. God is actually looking. God is actually actively engaged in the world around us. And his heart is actually to see, are there people who are looking for me? Are there people who are longing to be in relationship with me? And even if they're not, there is this promise in verse 7 of God doing work. God actually restoring. God actually saving sinners. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says this. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. That's a beautiful verse. Look at those words in there. The word salvation and the word restores. The last line says, Jacob, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. In the midst of the corruption, in the midst of man rejecting God and, and going the way of the foolish, there is hope that comes from Zion. There is hope that God is actually doing something, that God is going to come through on his promises. Now that is a promise, and I think we've said this number of time, a number of times as we've gone through the Psalms, that's a promise that is hard to believe in. It's a promise that, I mean, that's part of the reason why we join together on Sundays is to remind ourselves of the hope that we have in Christ. But it's a promise that God's people have always struggled to hold on to. You think of the nation of Israel who, you know, when they were leaving Egypt, just seeing the ten plagues, like these amazing things that God has done. And then they come to the Red Sea, huge barrier, and then they're like, the Egyptians are coming for us, we might as well die. Let's just, just kill us. You brought us here, God, to watch us be murdered in front of your eyes. That was, you know, they're not holding on to the promises of what they just saw, right? They're like, just kill me now. Or in Jesus' day, you think of the disciples. They've seen all of Jesus' miracles. They've been like, they've eaten some of the fish and the bread that has been multiplied by Christ. And then we know that, you know, Thomas is doubting, and there's multiple times where it says the disciples are doubting. They're still like, God, I don't know, we haven't seen enough. It's hard to believe that God is actually doing something in the midst of the corruption and the mess. But David says in this verse of promise that salvation is coming. He's looking ahead, right? He's looking forward. He's saying there is a promise and we as believers look back and we can see that the promise actually is in Jesus. It's been fulfilled in him. And Jesus himself, knowing that this 
message of God's grace and of God's work in the midst of corruption that it would be hard to believe. He gave us stories. And in Luke 15, there's a number of stories of the lost this or the lost that. Okay, And probably the one that we're most familiar with is the story of the prodigal son. This story of a son who goes up to his father and he's like, Dad, basically I wish you were dead. Can I have my inheritance? And his dad is like, okay, fine, here, take your money and go. And the son says, I'm out of here. I'm going to go have a good time. And we all know the story, or many of us probably know the story, where he goes out and goes to a different land, goes to the Vegas of the time, wherever it is that he goes, and just blows all of his money, and everything goes really bad in the end, and he finds himself in, like, abject poverty. And he gets to the point where he's, like, trying to get some food And he sees the pigs that are eating the slop, and he's like, I wish I had some of that. Okay, so he has reached the bottom. But then comes into his mind, he's like, hmm, dad's still rich. I could go back, and I'd just be a servant. I know that I'm never going to be a son again. That's done. I burned that bridge. It's over. But if I just go back, I can maybe, like, work, and then I can eat maybe what the pigs are eating, or maybe, like, a little bit better than that. So he's at the bottom, and so he's got nothing left to lose, and so he goes back. Now, what he doesn't realize is that all along, his dad has been out there looking, right? Like regularly out there, just looking at the horizon, waiting for his son to come back, waiting for a time when he can lavish on him again the gifts and and the position and everything that it means to be a part of the family. And when he's like getting near, the father is actually having one of those moments where he's been looking, and in like awe and and shock. Now, I'm adding words to the text, okay, but I'm assuming, you know, in shock, he sees the son actually walking up, and he runs, and he takes him in. And he says, we are going to have a feast. We are going to enter into, like, this great joy. Look at the same words that David is using here. He says, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. That's what the father is experiencing. This is Jesus, again, trying to get us and and the hearers at that time to see this is what the grace of God is like when people who are far away, people who are corrupted, when they are brought near, this is the heart of the Father. We also know that when the feast is beginning, the older brother comes along, right? The older brother comes from the field, the one who's been there the whole time, and he says, what's this feast about? Like, what's going on? And they tell him that your brother is back, He was in a bit of a mess, but your dad brought him back in, and we're having a big feast. And the son rejects what God is actually doing. The one who's actually been there the whole time, who should know his father, actually sees his grace and rejects him. And this is what he says at the end of the story in Luke chapter 15, verse 31, he says, and he said to him, this is the father speaking to the older son, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. There's that word again. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the grace of God that we should be glad people. And that's, that's my question here to end the messages. Are we a glad people? And I'm not just talking about like happy, you know, or we're just like, we're really positive. We write down like 50 things every day that we're glad about. Like 
That's all great and good. But I'm saying, are we a glad people so that we can enter in when we see the grace of God at work in people's hearts? Usually it starts by seeing the, you know, the, to go back to the story, the wretched brother kind of walking up as a besheveled mess, right? That's where it starts. But we actually see the grace of God. Do we enter into the gladness or do we actually reject it? Do we actually push it away for whatever reason? Are we a glad people? When it comes to you personally, are you glad because of what Christ has done for you, no matter what happens? And I was reading an article um, by Joni Erickson Tada. I don't know if you are familiar with her. Um, she, as a teenager, dove into water and became a paraplegic and has been in a wheelchair her whole life. And she's just been outspoken about how God has, you know, continued to use her and how God has a plan for her. And just a few years ago, she ended up getting breast cancer. Okay, so another, like, huge thing in her life. And she writes this article about how suddenly everything she got in the mail from, like, um, people was pink stuff. Okay, it was like everything pink because she was a breast cancer survivor, right? So it was like pink teddy bears, pink ribbons, everything. And she was like, man, this identity of being a cancer survivor, she was like, it was almost tempting for it to like take on a, a greater place than it should have, right? Like a good thing somehow was taking on like a greater thing than actually her connection to her father and her savior. And she wrote this. She says, my world, my breath, and very being, my identity is in Christ and Christ alone. I am not my own. I was bought with the price of God's blood. Satan hates that. And he will do everything he can, use my wheelchair, my notoriety, ministry, whatever, to focus me away from Christ. She's saying, man, personally, I only want to find my gladness, my fulfillment, my identity in Christ alone. When I start detracting and looking at other things, even good things, she says they can pull me away from actually the true reality of who I am. And this was the problem that the older brother had. He wasn't actually seeing the grace that was right before him. And so us corporately as a church, and let's close with this, how do we choose to be a church that is glad in Christ, the gladness of Christ in our presence. I just wrote down three things, and we could probably come up with a list of 50 things, okay? But here's a few things that came to my mind is, firstly, we seek the new person. We seek the new person because of our gladness, because of the promise that we see in verse 7 there, because we know that Christ has done everything. We know that we are glad in him because of all that he has done for us. And so we willingly reach out to new people. There's a new willingness to do that. There's maybe a fear in that, but actually that fear should be standing on Christ has done this for me. I'm just, that makes me happy. That makes me glad. I want to tell other people about that. And so we willingly seek the new person. Maybe secondly, the one that is, maybe there's like some difficulty with this one, is willingly sacrifice moments of friendship for sharing gladness with others. So not only do we seek the new person, 
but we also willingly sacrifice something that we love and long for because we know that it's rooted in something bigger than just our own happiness. We are glad in Christ, and so we willingly sacrifice something of ours that makes us glad, but because that, like, maybe you're with your, like, friends, and that's a wonderful gift, and you're talking to them, but you realize that there's actually something down below that that is bigger, that actually I want to stand on that is stronger than even these amazing friendships that I have. It's the, the gladness, it's the joy in Christ. And then the third one was, we root our gladness as a church in Jesus over everything else. So you've noticed, or maybe you haven't noticed, that the pipe organ is slowly disappearing, okay? Maybe you really love that pipe organ. I don't know, okay? But it's slowly disappearing. And in the coming weeks, other things in the building will slowly disappear, okay? And then eventually, if the plan goes according to, you know, their, what, what the plan is for them, Trinity United, this building will come down. Our gladness is not in these things, as much as we're thankful for the stability of being able to be here, right? Thumbs up on that one. But our gladness is not in our ability to just be in this physical space. We will strive together to point each other to our true gladness, which is in Jesus Christ. Let me close by just reading another psalm, which I think reflects Psalm 14. It's Psalm 40, verses 1 through 4. In Psalm 40, David writes this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction and out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And blessed is the man and the woman who makes the Lord his trust. May that be our prayer as a church together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this great salvation. We thank you, Lord, for the the gladness and the joy that we can find in Jesus Christ, our, our only hope. Lord, help us as a church to just cling to that. And to remind each other weekly and daily, if needed, of your goodness to us through Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.